Sego and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I am your host. And hey, we are listener supported radio. So uh, we're usually coming right off the off the top of the show. I want to express to people how much I uh, I wish and hope and implore them to support the radio stations that carry this program. And, and by those stations, I mean WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. So if you're in New York and you're listening to this program, I'd appreciate it if you'd go to the pledge line and go to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to wbai.org and make a donation in the name of the show. Uh, it doesn't come to me. It goes right to the station, but it, uh, it does send a signal to, uh, to the station that you, uh, that you listen and enjoy this program. If you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW-FM, then uh, call 202-588-9739 or go online to WPFWFM.org and follow the prompts there as well. Uh, and if you're listening on any other uh, Pacifica affiliate, uh, please do support the, uh, the platform that you're listening to us on. Speaking of platforms, I also got to mention that we do take this show and we put it up as a podcast. So you can find Resistance Radio with John and Regan. Uh, if you search that on any of your major podcast platforms, I also do a podcast called Let's Talk Native with John Kane, and you can uh, search that as well and, uh, you know, and, and find out more of the conversations. Obviously, if you're listening to this show, you may want to check back in. But if you if you want to hear something more, check out my Let's Talk Native podcast as well. I am also on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Let's Talk Native TV. Uh, oftentimes I'll put up a show as a YouTube video, even though it's really just an audio but I, if you scroll down on my channel, I have a bunch of short-form videos, some that are not so short, but uh, short-form videos on everything from Columbus to mascots to um, Doctrine of Discovery, you know, any number of things, gaming, um, many of the things that I talk about. And it's, it's, a, it's a way to get right to the issue, focus in narrowly on, uh, on a specific issue, and, and learn a lot. And, and there, you, once, you've, once you've looked at it and once you've saved it or whatever, it, it becomes a resource that you can go back to over and over again. All right. Well, you know, we are not mainstream media here. You know, we, you know, look, m many of us who, who do these programs on uh, WPFW and WBI are volunteers. We uh, are, we're volunteers to the station, but we're also activists. And, and so we're, in, in, we're engaged in our, in our communities. We're engaged in the issues. And, and as a Native person, I have a full range of issues that, uh, that I usually involve myself in, and obviously I talk about many of them here, but I also try to offer on this program a Native perspective on issues that affect us all, or issues that we're all seeing, perhaps in, in other places on the media. So last Sunday, uh, on 60 Minutes, Anderson Cooper did a segment on residential schools, and by residential schools, he means uh, Indian boarding schools. But the focus was entirely, and I mean entirely, on the Canadian side, on Canadian Indian residential schools or Indian boarding schools. Now, he made a passing reference about uh, Carlisle Indian School existing. He may have even he mentioned the slogan that was used, which was, kill the Indian, save the man. Uh, and then he, he also suggested at one point that the Canadian boarding schools may have been, um, uh, they may have come as a suggestion or as a, as a part of what the United States has done. But by and large, it completely skirted and, and re failed to even, even reference the fact that the United States began this, this whole era, uh, over 100 years of this, uh, you know, and there's no other way to describe it other than genocide. I mean, it, it is by definition, everything that the children were, uh, that was done to the children, everything from death to punishment, physical, sexual, uh, psychological damage, uh, being taken from their families, uh, sterilization programs that were tied to these things, and and the idea of trying to kill culture and and by culture I mean language I mean I really mean identity and the, so the the whole process and the whole reason for these schools on both the U.S. and the Canadian side was about eliminating us as a people by cutting that connection to our identity. Now, Canada had, you know, 130 of these, these schools, and the United States had over 300 of them. You know, when they, when they talk about the number of kids that went through these Canadian schools, it pales by comparison to what the, to what the United States had. At one point, 
85% of all Native children had been conscripted, had been taken, had been forced, had been imprisoned in these schools. And, and again, this isn't just um, a bad period of time, you know, five, 10 years. This is 100 years of these things happening. So when, when I, and I'm sorry, as I listened to that program, all I could hear over and over again was how much it was, it was a reference to what's happening on the Canadian side with no ownership, no foreboding of the devastating reckoning that the United States still has to encounter itself. I mean, on the Canadian side, they did the so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it was a debacle. But the United States hasn't even started. There has been no reckoning by the United States. None. You know, you know a passing comment here and there. I mean, obviously... It is almost impossible not to mention the fact that the United States had these same schools and started this, pra this practice that not only was exported to Canada, but it was exported to New Zealand, Australia, Africa, South America, all over the place. And, and when I'm talking about this in this context, I mean the federal program. But, but let's be clear. This idea of taking children away, Native children away, had been going on, you know, for decades before it became a federal policy, there were states that did it. There were churches that were doing it anyway. And all of these schools were government-funded but church-run. The Catholic Church had a big role in, in, in these, these churches, and, or in, in these schools, <laughs> in these churches, right, uh, in, in these schools. You know, and, and, and among the, uh, the part that I found most, uh, that I find, I should say, most offensive about any attempt to even address this issue is that it doesn't address the long-term harm. It, it always makes it sound like, oh, these were the atrocities. And they kind of focus on, on what individuals went to, not what our peoples as a whole went through and how much damage it did to our nations, to our, to our broader culture. I mean, yeah, it, it hurts to take it away from, a, from an individual. It hurts to take that stuff away from a child. It hurts to take a child away from his family. But that hurt isn't just an individual pain. It's not just a crime against an individual. It's a crime against an entire people, an entire race of people, nations, you know, 500 nations across the United States and Canada, a thousand more like it. But this is a crime that is committed against an entire people. It is ethnic cleansing. It is genocide. And, you know, and, and, and uh, I, the part that really burned me up at the end of the interview, and look, I'm not even making a judgment about Anderson Cooper, you know, as, as a journalist or anything else. But to listen to 60 Minutes address this without any suggestion of, of the reckoning the United States has to go through was deplorable. And then at the very end, they closed the segment by speaking to this woman and, su and suggesting to her, asking her, putting her on the spot, whether she has reconciled her hurt, her pain, her intergenerational trauma, um, and, and, and reconciled her relationship with the Virgin Mar Mother Mary. Like, that's what this was about? You want to suggest that, that somehow the, the reconciliation has to, has to be done with the church? Not about our land loss, not about our culture loss, not about the fact that our population was diminished during this period of time? They closed this with, you know, by bookending it with another assimilation reference. Oh, so, you, so you're good with the Virgin Mary. In other words, no matter what the church did to you, no matter what you witnessed, how many family members you lost while you were in that school? You're good with the church now, right? You're good with Virgin Mary, and you're and you're and you're good with Jesus. Ah, oh, man, I I heard that, and and I'm just cringing. But you know what? So that was last Sunday. Also last week, with you know, especially with the with the Olympics going on in uh, in China, there's you know there's a lot of conversation about you know Chinese uh, uh, human rights abuses, and of course the you know the the Greatest example of that is is what China is doing to the Uyghurs, which are the you know for those of you who don't know, and I know most of this listening audience does know, these are the the, the Chinese population that are uh, primarily of, uh, of of Muslim faith, and so they did this whole piece on NPR where they were talking about these two children who were uh, taken from their family and then um, and sent to you know <laughs> to a boarding school. That where they're called, where they where they were punished and beaten and tortured and done all these things to try to eliminate their their language, their uh, their culture and that kind of stuff. But uh, and and I know 
I, I got Reggie standing by with, with an audio, and I want to play this audio because, you know, again, when I suggest that this sh part of the show is about offering a Native perspective, I want you listening to this program to hear this comment from, uh, from uh, Tony Blinken, the, the Secretary of State, about the Uyghurs. And, and just for a second, even as you're listening to the words, just for a second, imagine how it sounds to me. Imagine how it sounds to a native person who is fully aware of what has uh, what's transpired with, uh, with with residential schools, the history of the United States. Reggie, can you have that queued up for us? I most certainly do. All right, make sure we got some volume on it too, because uh, it seems a little quiet on your mic. But but go ahead and uh, go ahead and play some some. Give us some little a little bit of Tony Blinken, would you? Roger that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, a genocide taking place against uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Efforts to indoctrinate them, to deny their culture, to deny their heritage, and various repressive and violent actions directed against them because they're Uyghurs. So, I mean, this is just one quote, and this is actually from a year ago, even though they aired it this, this past week on NPR. And the whole story was about that. And, and the fact that they're calling it a genocide. And, of course, they do have an, sometimes slip in cultural genocide like as if that's really a thing and for those of you who listened to me in the past you know that my view is there's no such thing as cultural genocide because if you're trying to eliminate a people by attacking and erasing their culture and their identity that's still genocide you don't need to put a precursor in it to somehow soften the blow because you know what although you may think denying somebody uh, their language and their culture is somehow uh, less offensive than, you know, than physical abuse and murder and that kind of stuff. The physical and abuse and murder stuff did take place. The rape, the, the you know, again, in, on the, on the uh, 60 Minutes program, they talked about children, including newborns who were born to, uh, to, to raped um, students that were thrown in incinerators. I mean, this isn't just about denying somebody the right to speak in their language or, or grow their hair out. I mean, it is about that, but it's not just about that. Women were sterilized. Women, I'm sorry. Girls were sterilized. And, and again, unlike the situation with, with China and the Uyghurs, this has been going on for, this went on for over 100 years. And honestly, some of the, some of that behavior and the legacy of the residential schools continues today in the form of foster care, you know, adoption, and any number of things. When, when Maine did their Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it wasn't necessarily on just residential schools. It was on the foster care system. So you have to understand that these, these systemic racist policies, genocidal policies, they don't ever come to a clear end. They, they don't. I mean, they, and, and oftentimes I, I feel like I've got to remind people what racism is. Because some people think racism is just about people of, uh, who have different colored skin not liking each other. That's not racism. I mean, you can maybe break that down to racial bias or something like that. But racism isn't just about people of diff different race, ethnicities, or, or culture not getting along. It's about power. It's about the power dynamic between a dominant culture and marginalized people who are living within or apart or, or beside that dominant culture. And so when you commit genocide against people, that is clearly a racist act because you are asserting power over people to, to either one, wipe them out entirely as a population through, through murder or wipe them out in a way that, that erases their identity to where they kind of, you know, the, the old melting pot theory. Yeah, if we take away their distinction, then they'll just kind of melt into the rest of American society, albeit at the bottom end of that social structure. So, so that's, these, these are racist acts. And, and, I, and, I, and oftentimes I mention on the show that Native people have experienced a unique form of racism. Nobody else went through this. I mean, nobody else. I mean, black children were not ripped away and put in, into residential schools. I'm not saying some didn't, but I'm saying as, as, a, as a national policy, 
it didn't happen. You know, uh, Chinese immigrants, it didn't happen to. It didn't happen to anybody else, only Native people, because for the United States, we were a problem. And you know what? For the United States, we still are a problem. We are a black eye. That's why they, when they've got to talk about things like the Uyghurs and pretend that everything that they're saying about what, the, what these Uyghur children are going through isn't exactly what the United States has done and, and did for over 100 years to Native kids. And, and in many ways still does, again, through foster care, CPS, and, and, and all of this other stuff. And, you know, look, there's, there's a lot of conversations about critical race theory. And, but not a whole lot of people describing what critical race theory is. What critical race theory is, it, it, is, it, it was established as, as an analysis, mostly for like um, a law college, to look at how race and racism impacts not only legislation, laws, but the justice system. I mean, that's, that's what the course is. That's what critical race theory is based on. But, you know, we don't look at critical race theory as it applies to Native people. I mean, the idea that racism could be so prevalent and so commonplace as it relates to Native people that you could create an entire policy that exists. I mean, think about how many uh, uh, governmental administrations, both state and federal, uh, 100 years represents. For 100 years, you could have this racist policy and pretend that it was for our own good the whole time. I mean, that's again, not just the not that's not, not just about the power dynamic. It's about the the sense of supremacy, superiority, and inferiority. That we were such a lowly people. Look, in New York State, they considered native kids as being disabled. That that our children were irredeemable. That's what New York State called uh, called native kids. They're irredeemable. You're, you're never gonna make you know, productive US citizens out of them. So teach them to dig dig ditches or do some menial task and you know they'll never be a part of our society but maybe we can get some value out of them that's what new york state's policy was and, that, and that's not even the federal policy because they, although they ran parallel they weren't necessarily incorporated together i mean this is the absurdity of uh, uh, as to how strong the racism as it related to native people were and most people aren't aware of this and and this is something that, that i always mention and look, I get hit with this all the time when, when people say, well, I always got to talk about mascots. During that hundred years that Native children were ripped from their homes, sent to these prisons, where oftentimes they died trying to escape from. I mean, some of the deaths associated was, was them dying trying to leave these places. For that hundred years, that's when white schools were picking up the appropriation of Native imagery that they, that they completely erased and then recreated for their mascots. So while Native kids were having their hair chopped off, their clothing burned, going through their delicing pro, uh, you know, process, having, being chemically dipped, being malnourished, underfed, undercared for, lack of uh, any kind of real um, uh, health care, being raped, murdered, beaten, and abused, all because of their identity and all being done to them, you know, and look, all of it, including the neglect, was done to wipe out their identity. So that's what's happening to Native kids while white kids are being told, oh, yeah, you can play Indian. Yeah, go ahead. You'll put some feathers in your hair. You'll go to the football game. You're going to call yourself the Indians, the Savages, the Redskins, the, the Tomahawks, the Braves, the Warriors, whatever. We're, we're going to give you, you know, a name. And we'll make some cartoon logos that, that you can say, you know, are, is your mascot. Or we'll use what Hollywood has already produced, the, the full headdress, Plains Indian uh, uh, war bonnet. And uh, you guys can, can claim to be Indians all you want. You can play Indian all you want. You know, in fact, whether you're on a football field or, you know, or a basketball team or whatever else. In fact, we're going to, even as we... Um, offer the commentary about your play, we're going to liken it to the Indian Wars. We're going to talk about how you ambushed and how you, you know, how you, ma how you massacred or how you were massacred. We're going to talk about scalping. We're going to do tomahawk chops, which is essentially 
symbolizing uh, bludgeoning somebody to death. We're going to do all that stuff. We're going we're gonna to put the, the cheerleaders in little Pocahontas costumes and se over-sexualize them. We're going to fetishize Native people with, with mascots, people in, in costume. And, and when we finally get done with that, then we're just going to plaster it on shirts in two-dimensional images. We're going to have the banners. We're going to have the signs. We're going to have the T-shirts. We're going to have it, the logo embroidered on your shorts, on your sweatshirts, on your hoodies. And that all happens while Native kids were literally dying in residential schools. So, look, it's, I, I'm glad to see that 60 Minutes did a show on residential schools. But there's a way to erase things through, through omission. And, and by many, by, I guess by many regards, or in many regards, omission is about erasure. And that's exactly what 60 Minutes did. Because just subtly re you know, referencing Carlisle Indian School, and not the fact that there were over 300 of them, and when you talk about ground-penetrating radar, discovering bodies buried at these residential schools in Canada, and don't reference the fact that every residential school in the United States had a graveyard, some of them with Mark Graves, many of them not with Mark Graves, and even some of them with Mark Graves, they didn't even have a name on the tombstone. Carlisle Indian School, unknown. That's what it says on, on, uh, on a bunch of those gravestones, unknown. Well, how the hell could you have a child in a school and you don't even know a name? And of course, names were kind of irrelevant because the native kids lost their names and they were, uh, they, they were taken from them and deprived of them. And they were giving, given the biblical names, you know, Joshua, you know, Samuel, you know, um, Matthew, you know, Sarah, you know, all, the, all these names that you, could, that you could pull right out, right out of the Bible. Put them on a chalkboard. All right, this is going to be your name. We'll cross that off. This is going to be your name. We'll cross that off. And that's, and, and that's what happened in these residential schools. So while, you know, well, great, Anderson Cooper can check the box. Yeah, I did a show on residential schools. But you, you missed it. You, you muffed it. What, that show on residential schools, especially on the American media, in the United States, the, one of the premier news magazine shows uh, you know, in, in American broadcast history, 60 Minutes, you could do it on the residential schools in Canada, close it out with some reconciliation with the Virgin Mother Mary, and think that you did, the good, did a good job? I, I mean to tell you, it, it, this is why it's frustrating to do the work that I do, because we are in a constant battle over much better resourced um, uh, institutions like, uh, like commercial television, but even, even NPR. And, and again, you know, shame on NPR for still failing, because they've done the same thing. They've done plenty of, uh, they've done a number of stories on residential schools on the Canadian side. And then they always try to parse it like, the United States is going to somehow do better. You got to reference the fact that the interior secretary is native and that she's made a commitment. She hasn't made a commitment. You know, look, a, a little bit of word salad, you know, uh, a little bit of lip service doesn't address the fact that not only were crimes committed against individual native children and entire families, but our entire nations had gone through this stuff. We, we had the largest... It was the largest period of land loss that Native people experienced was during that same hundred years. The largest period of depopulation took place at that, at, during that same hundred years. And you know what? When I say a hundred years, I mean up until the 1970s, 1970s in the United States, and actually to, into the 1990s in, in, on the Canadian side. And to be clear, in 1913, the world was already beginning to reckon with this notion of denationalization. And the world, you know, you know through the League of, League of Nations and then ultimately through, um, through, the, uh, uh, through the United Nations, would call denationalization a war crime. It didn't matter if you weren't at war. You could still commit a war crime. And the idea of stripping away somebody's national character or cultural character and then imposing another nation's 
character upon them. That was considered a war crime in 1913. Denationalization would later um, be worded differently, and, and it, would, it would gain a new word. A new word would enter the, the lexicon, the international lexicon, genocide. So denationalization was kind of put, you know, put on a shelf, and the word genocide came to mean exactly what the, these residential schools represented. And it included this idea of stripping away somebody's national character. I mean, that's, I mean, it, one, of the, one of the definitions is creating the conditions that would cause a, a, a people to, you know, to be extinguished. Creating the conditions. Well, that's what assimilation is. Assimilation is this idea of creating a condition where a people would cease to exist. Doesn't mean you have to do it overnight. In fact, take your time. You got 100 years to do it. And that's what the United States and Canada did. 100 years of these residential schools. And it didn't end. I mean, it, and, and there's actually still, there's still a few boarding schools out there. And certainly there are still, there's still large church presence. I mean, for all of this, I don't know how we consider reconciliation when you go on any native territory and the, the overwhelming and imposing um, existence of, of churches are all over the place. Now, I'm, and, the, and the idea that Anderson Cooper, again, ends, ends his, uh, his little piece just on this idea that this victim, this survivor of residential schools, is now good with the Catholic Church again. And she, she's good with uh, the Virgin Mary and Jesus. I don't know where the Virgin Mary and Jesus were when, when our children were being murdered by the thousands, tens of thousands in these schools. But, you know, that, that's, that's the story. I want to shift gears a little bit, but I still, still on the same theme of critical race theory as applies to Native people. Again, let me remind people, critical race theory is about the analysis that, of racism and the impacts that it has on law and on the justice system. That's what, that's what the, at, at its core, it's not just about teaching stuff to white people that's going to make them uncomfortable. That's, that's what, the way it's been reinterpreted by the right. Oh, we're, we're going to ban critical race theory from being taught in high schools. It isn't taught in high schools. It isn't taught in high schools. And even if you talk about some of the policies or some of the atrocities committed against Native people in, in your high school history class or global studies class, that's still not critical race theory. Critical race theory is doing an analysis on the role that racism plays in law. Now, obviously, there were laws passed that enabled, and there were budgets you know, for over 100 years created to fund these residential schools, and I should say fund the churches who ran the residential schools. But, but you don't have to go back uh, to the 1860s when, when some of this stuff began. Modern history, and one of the things that we're, we're still very much engaged in is, is a fight with the, both the states and the federal government over gaming, native gaming. Now, you would think that this, this would have been a resolved issue. I mean, in fact, you know, we're fighting the states primarily, but to, and, to, and the federal governments throughout the 80s. When we first started doing like bingos, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, we were doing bingo halls to generate money. Because let me, let me be clear here. We don't have public finance on, on native territories. We don't have tax systems. I mean, some may have a little bit. We're still fighting the federal government over income tax. We're still fighting the state government over income tax. We're still fighting the federal government over any number of excise taxes and sales taxes and, and, and other fees that are imposed to everybody else, but including us on our own territory. Same with the state. So they have a completely different system of public finance, both at the, at the municipal, you know, regional county uh, level, at the state level, and at the federal level. We don't have that. And part of it, and, and I'm not saying it to, be, to bemoan the fact that we don't have it. I'm just saying it to point out the difference. So many times, our means of public finance has to do with, with nation enterprises. And look, some of those nation enterprises are things like mining and resource extraction, much to our, many of our chagrin, right? But one of the, the, one of the shifts began when, was when we started doing gaming. 
1987, California tried to stop one of these native territories from doing this. And they, uh, you know, they were trying to stop the Cabazon from doing, a, doing a, what they call a high-stakes bingo game. And that's how they funded that. That, that's, that was their means of public finance. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically ruled in favor of the Cabazons. And, and what they said was, there's no underlying statutory framework or restriction or regulations that exist that prohibit Native people from doing gaming. I mean, that's basically, I mean, they, the Supreme Court didn't make Native gaming legal. They just acknowledged that there was nothing in federal law that gave the feds or the states the authority to regulate gaming on our territories. And so the, the Supreme Court said, hey, if the states are doing gaming, Native people can do gaming. If the states are doing gaming but they, and the states regulate gaming, then Native people can regulate their own gaming. That was the ruling in 87. So what the Supreme Court was acknowledging was that there was no statutory framework. There, was no, there were no laws. So in a place where there was no law that the United States could impose on us, a distinct people, who began slowly, I mean, this wasn't like this floodgate opening up. They began slowly using gaming. Most of it, you know, was this what they would consider class two gaming to, um, to, to generate revenue for, for our nations, for our communities. But once, the, the, once the, the haze of the legality or illegality of native gaming, because look, the whole time we were doing it, there was that haze. There was this question. Was it gray? Was it a gray area? Well, once the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cabazons, the Fed said, wait a second, we can't, we can't just stand by and let there be no statutory framework. So out of nothing, out of thin air, where there was no law that granted the Feds or the states authority over us as it related to gaming, the United States created one. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, IGRA. It, it was it was passed a, a little over a year later. So the moment the courts were forced to acknowledge that we had the right that that we had the right to do something, not that they granted it, but that that we that that right existed, the white supremacy that exists at the you know in, at the governmental level that says we are the superior and we can just create law out of thin air target it against a specific people and change and take away, withdraw their freedoms. That is the definition of racism. I mean, it's the definition of racism. It's, it's where power and superiority allows a dominant culture to oppress what they view as, a, as an inferior people. It isn't about whether they liked us or not. And in fact, much of what the, when they created that law, they said they were doing it to protect us. They're, they're going to protect, protect us from organized crime. And there was even some conversation, although it's not listed in the statute, that it was to protect us from, from overly aggressive states, which it has failed to do big time. So that is what, I mean, that is the definition of racism. When you can target a specific people based on race, ethnicity, or, or culture, and say, no, we're going to take something from them. We're not going to let them. We understand that they're different than us. Again, we don't do public finance, right? <laughs> we don't have some of the infrastructure. And, we, and nor would we incorporate the American model on our territories. But you know what? If you're not going to act like us, we're, we're just going to control you. And that's, that's, what, that's what the Indian Gaming Regulation... And it not only took power from our territories... And, and placed under under the Interior Secretary uh, and, and under the federal government, it imposed the states in our business. We have been fairly successful at pushing back on the states. That's, that's how we were doing things like sales of tobacco um, and, and, and gas and other things that were highly taxed issues in, in some of our states, or in some of the states, I should say. Um, not that the states ever conceded. I mean, to this day, New York State still believes that the sale of tobacco on native territory without a New York state stamp on it is illegal. That's the, that's the state's position still. Now they're powerless to enforce their, their will over us. Although they've tried like hell and they'll probably try like hell again. 
In fact, we now enter into, into a new phase because now with, uh, with recreational marijuana being legalized at the state, although not regulated and put in place and operational, our people didn't wait. We've got, we've got dispensaries all over Native territories and in what New York State considers territories within their state. And we do that ignoring state authority. But you know what? We couldn't ignore it when it came to gaming because of this statute, because of this racist statute that was passed. Look, I've also heard other, um, in, both in the U.S. and the Canadian side for that matter, this notion that our Native governments are incorporated in the system of federalism. Now, if you don't know what that means, that means you have the federal government, you have state government, you have county government, you have, and then you have municipal government. And somewhere in there, there are some that believe, and this is really pushed hard on the Canadian side, but even on the U.S. side, there are some that believe that the native government is also in that system of federalism. Now, to be clear, that's a hierarchy. I mean, the, the, from the city or township government, you know, through county, state, and federal, it's, you know, every, every branch has more and more authority. Now, I'm not saying the, the federal government doesn't recognize some sovereignty of the state, whatever that's supposed to mean at the state level, but, but the overarching authority comes from the federal government, so it's a hierarchy. Now, there's nothing racist about there being um, a, some sort of supremacy um, relationship in that hierarchy in the system of federalism, unless one of those <laughs> cogs in that wheel, which we, we, we say do, doesn't exist, but if you're saying one of those cogs is a specific race of people that somehow have to feel their way within this system of supremacy where in most places, even the, at the municipal level, we have cities that think they have authority over, over native, ter native ter territories or they have supremacy. So even the system of federalism, if we are plugged in there as a distinct people that, that really have no constitution that, it, that incorporates us into that system, if you're going to say that, that federal, state, county, municipal, whatever government has supremacy over native government, now you've crossed the line because we're we're a distinct people. We and so you're you're granting and you're for, forming through again this this analysis of critical race theory that native people are subordinate to non-native people, both within this context of uh, uh, you know of the system of federalism and within this notion that the federal government can just pass a law, just create a law out of thin air. You know, I've mentioned it before, and I'm not a big fan of, of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I think it's very weak. But one of the things that the that system has, or that declaration has in it, and it's mentioned, you know, six, seven times or so, in, and it, it, what it calls for is that anything, any various practice, policy, law, you know, action that impacts Native people, that free, prior, and informed consent must be, must be gained. It must be obtained for a nation state to impose some activity that has impact on native peoples, indigenous peoples, it is, be, it is becoming on the, on the state, the nation state, to achieve our consent. Free, prior, and informed consent. Now, that's not consultation. But when, you know, when IGRA was passed, we weren't even consulted. We didn't participate, we weren't consulted. They had, they had neither our participation nor our consent. So this, even though the, the international community is saying, yes, Native people, um, they, there needs to be, you know, consent when a nation state does something to impact them, especially negatively. But, but that also includes things like settlements. You know, if, they, if they've done a wrong, like 100 years of residential schools, you're not going to just cut us a check and say, okay, there, we're good now. No, if we haven't, if we haven't given free prior and informed consent to whatever you're calling reconciliation, then it ain't reconciliation. And look, IGRA forced Native people to enter into a gaming compact with a state. That's not free prior and informed consent. And that gaming compact 
that relationship that native territories have to have with a state, and not just New York State, any state, that's imposed upon us. That, by definition, you know, violates this idea of free prior and informed consent. As far as the federal government is concerned, if you're going to run a legal gaming enterprise, you have to do it this way, otherwise we're going to call it illegal. Now, the other thing is the failure between the, the federal government and the states in terms of regulating their abuses, the state's abuses. And that's what we have here in the Second Nation. We have the state that is forcing, forcing native territories to pay them gaming revenue, even though the, the federal statute says that's illegal. And they do it under the guise of, uh, of revenue sharing agreements. And those revenue sharing agreements are supposed to be uh, come out of the state conceding something of value and then getting paid uh, some revenue, uh, um, you know, getting some shared revenue out of that for that concession. Well, that means the state had to give something up. And what they had to give up, what they give up has to be quantifiable. You'd be able to, you should be able to place a value on it. And that value has to meet or exceed the revenue sharing that the native gaming operation is providing. Otherwise, it's not just. It's illegal. It's, it's imposed. And it, it becomes further imposed if the belief is through implication, innuendo, and, and any number of ways of masking a threat, if you don't share revenue with us, if you don't sign a revenue sharing agreement, we aren't going to enter into a compact, and that means you can't operate. I don't believe that's true, and that's what's happening in the Seneca Territory right now. In fact, the fear of not having a... Um, an existing gaming compact is so strong amongst the elected officials here in Seneca territory that they're just going to pay, you know, keep paying. They're going to keep paying. Their, their, their revenue sharing agreement essentially expired at the end of 2016. And the state fought them. So no, you got to keep paying. They went into binding arbitration. Two white guys on the, on, on the arbitration panel said, oh yeah, you got to keep paying. Seneca said, no, we're still not paying. We don't believe we have to pay. And the whole idea was, well, let's get the Interior Department to weigh in. Because now if you're changing the language in our compact and extending a period of time that we're supposed to make these revenue sharing agreements or these payments, even though you're not giving us anything of value in return, that requires the Interior Department to, to sign off on it, and, which they haven't done. They haven't done anything. They've been, they've been signed. They've been signed for 30 years of IGRA. But now, out of fear that the state may somehow have the authority to shut down the multi-billion dollar industry that the Seneca Nation created through its three casinos in Western New York, has, the, has Seneca officials saying, all right, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna just pay them. We've already paid them a billion and a half dollars. We'll pay them another billion dollars just, just so we can stay, stay operational. That's extortion. Well, the people of Seneca Nation are, are not down with that. And in fact, the women have actually organized and they've actually formed of what, they, what they call themselves the Seneca Mothers. And the reason they've done that is because there is a provision in the Seneca Nation Constitution that calls for uh, the need for approvals from the Seneca Mothers on certain agreements. I, you know, I, I personally thought it had more to do with land transactions, but it says three-quarters of the Seneca Mothers have to agree for the Seneca Nation Council and, and executives to do certain things. And so the, the women are organizing. Now, I, I think... It, there's a certain risk in alienating the other half of the, of the population, the male half, but um, but the but the women are making noise. But they're not the only ones making noise. Plenty of people are making noise. My you know my friend Ross John, who was on council, been on council for for several uh, terms now, he's basically the outlier on the Seneca Nation council. He stood up and said, "No, I oppose this. We are being raped," and and he has made a, a public statement calling Igra. And all of its requirements, racist, flat out racist. Now, I, and, and again, look, even when I get involved in the mascot debate, if I make a reference to white people, I get white people crying foul. Oh, how dare you bring race into the issue? You're using a race-based mascot for crying out loud. I'm not bringing race into the issue. You did. You're, you're using a native race-based mascot for your amusement and entertainment. You're the one creating, doing the racist act. I'm just saying you're white people. And you shouldn't be playing Indian. So when I hear white folks in particular cry about being 
um, victims of racism, it just tells me over and over again that there is a complete lack of understanding about what racism is. As I said earlier, racism is about power. It is about the institutions being controlled by a dominant, the dominant culture that skews all of the benefits towards that dominant culture. That's what racism, that's why they call it systemic, because the systems are racist. Residential schools, that was a system. It was racist. Creating this, this body of gaming law was skewed towards the federal and state governments. That's racist because they are predominant, that's the dominant culture, and we are the marginalized people. You don't have to hate somebody to be a racist. You don't even have to. You can pretend that there's no ill intent in your racism. I mean, some people would argue that Thomas Jefferson loved uh, his slaves. <laughs> but the idea, and I should say his enslaved, the people that he enslaved. I don't want to, I never want to consciously refer to a person as a slave because that's not an, that's not an identity. Slavery is a crime. And victimhood is not even an identity. But the idea that Sally Hemings mothered children to Thomas Jefferson, that was not, that could not in any way, shape, or form be viewed as consent if she was owned by him. And if her children, his children, were owned by him. It didn't matter if he treated them nice. It was still a racist act to enslave a person simply because of their, uh, of their race, ethnicity, or, or cultural differences. So to anybody that is a part of the dominant culture to cry racism because perhaps they were treated badly by a person of color? No, you were probably treated badly by a person of color for either just or unjust reasons, but that's not racism. That's, that might be racial bias, but you know why that racial bias exists for us? You know why I was raised with this notion I should never trust a white man? Because we have been screwed so many times by white people. There's a basis for that apprehension, for that racial bias, because of abuse, because of intergenerational trauma imposed upon a people. White people haven't suffered intergenerational trauma at the hands of, of marginalized people, black people, native people. Doesn't mean you didn't have, you know, some great grandparent, uh, you know, took an arrow to the side or something like that. Doesn't mean you didn't suffer an injury. But marginalized people never control the institutions. We never control the systems. We can't pass laws. Look, even when we make a bunch of noise and we do get some changes to happen, like the Washington football team to change to drop its its uh, its racist mascot, that's not the same thing as us having control of the systems. You know why that happened? It wasn't because we made noise out of it; because white people finally had enough of it. FedEx, Target, Walmart, Amazon—they made that change happen. We didn't have the power to change it. We don't have the power to change anything. What we can do is try to appeal to those people who do. Well, here's what we try to do. We try to use white privilege because we know white people have privilege. So we have to appeal to the good white people to use that privilege in a positive manner. As long as that privilege exists, it is on us, all of us people of color. <laughs> I mean, because, again, Black people represent, what, 13% of the U.S. population? Hispanics, which isn't even a race, it's more of an ethnicity, represent a little bit more than that. But Native people, we represent like one-tenth of 1% 1 of the U.S. population. I mean, it's, it's a pretty small number. So <laughs> when Barack Obama says, if I had a football team, in spite of its story tradition, and if that football team had a name that a significant number uh, of people found offensive, I think about changing the name. Well, you know what? In all your hypotheticals, one thing's for sure. We are not a significant number of people. Not by any kind of American standard. So 
We have to appeal to the conscience, the shame of people who do have power, white people. Because they are the ones required to change a law. And, we're, and how's, that, how's that going? I'll tell you how it's going. We got state after state after state banning the mere notion of critical race theory from being taught in schools. When it's not being taught in schools anyway. But then they broaden it a little bit so they, so, so they can actually have somebody report a teacher for teaching a subject that might make white, may raise a little bit of white guilt. And say, oh, yeah, that's critical race theory. If you teach about residential schools, that in of itself is not resident, that, that, I'm sorry, that's not uh, critical race theory. Critical race theory is doing a deeper dive into the systems that allow a government to use racism as the guiding principle for, uh, for passage of, of laws. That's what, that's what critical race theory is. And you know what? It should be taught. But beyond critical race theory, every racist practice, past, present, and future, should be eradicated. It, it all should go away. And I know that's not easy. I mean, there's all kinds of questions about, you know, uh, affirmative action and that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I hear this, this one clown on, on Facebook suggesting, well, women can't have equal rights unless we decide that 50% uh, that of all bricklayers are, are going to be women as well. I mean, that's the mentality that, that comes from, you know, this millennial way of thinking or whatever. Whatever you want to label it, I don't know. But, uh, you know, again, I, if you want to go back in and look at 60 Minutes uh, program on, and I had to go back and listen to it because somebody told me they, they saw it and looked at the Anderson Cooper piece on residential schools. You watch it. You watch that and see how much reference there is to the reckoning that the United States has yet to do. Or providing substantial information about the role the United States played in residential schools. You watch it. You go back to the NPR archives and listen to the story about the Uyghurs and these schools, these boarding schools where children are, are tortured to, get, to wipe out their, their, um, their culture. And you tell me what China is doing is any different than what the United States did for 100 freaking years. You tell me. Hey, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to step down off my soapbox for a little bit here. So <laughs> you guys uh, enjoy your week, and I look forward to uh, – I may be off next week, but uh, we'll, we'll, catch you, uh, we'll catch you the next time anyway. This is John Kane for John Kane and Regan DeLoggins, and this is Resistance Radio. Thanks for listening. Yahweh.